The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Church, would you remain standing with me this morning as we read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And all God's people said, you pray with me? Father God, we tremble before you. Knowing who you are as you've revealed yourself, We'd be fools to do anything other than tremble. And yet as your children, we come with expectant hope. Knowing that because we are found in Christ Jesus, because his death has appeased your wrath and reconciled us to you completely as sons and daughters, Even in the trembling, we're filled with joy, hope-filled expectation that you'll receive us, that you'll welcome us, that you will bless us. Father, the blessing that we desire this morning is to see you, is to know you, is to experience you. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would sharpen our minds, that you would keep all distractions away, that you would reveal yourself to us, help us to trust what we see, help us to walk in obedience to it. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So during our time together on the last Lord's Day, we studied the handing over of Jesus in the hands of a man called Pilate. Now the sun has risen on the day that we've come to call Good Friday. Since sometime just after midnight, Jesus has been in the custody of the Sanhedrin. Now for nearly three years, these religious leaders had sought to lay hands on Jesus. You see, rather than considering his teaching. Rather than examining their own hearts and asking if they in fact were blind men leading other men into a pit, the religious establishment instead gathered together and determined that Jesus Christ must be destroyed. They couldn't disprove his teaching. They couldn't rebut anything he had to say using the word of God. And so to them, the answer seemed clear. We must kill Jesus of Nazareth. And we spent our last month together studying all that these men did once they finally got their hands on Jesus. And what can only be described as an absolute mockery of judgment, these men held trial after trial as they moved towards their predetermined end. Jesus Christ was guilty. And in that guilt, he deserved nothing less than death. So Jesus, you may remember, was taken first to the former high priest, a man called Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of the current high priest, This was what we might call a deposition. Annas had some questions for Jesus. He wanted to know about Jesus, about his teaching, and about his disciples. But Jesus wouldn't answer these questions because Jesus had done nothing in secret. His teaching, his miracles, his healings, he had done this out in the open in front of the eyes of many, many crowds. And so if Annas wanted to know something about Jesus, if he wanted to know something about Jesus' teaching and his ministry, all he had to do was find anyone that had been in Jerusalem on this week. 
because of his dismissive response, Jesus was greeted with a strike in the face. One of the men from the temple police, he struck Jesus. Is that any way to speak to your high priest? And with that, Annas sends Jesus away. He then goes to the quarters of a man called Caiaphas, the current high priest, Annas' son-in-law. Now Caiaphas had gathered together the council, the Jewish Supreme Court that is called the Sanhedrin. These men, they had all gathered together, and for a myriad of reasons, this was not a legal trial. And yet, they were going to move again towards their appointed, their appointed end as they brought in witness after witness. All of these men giving false testimony. All of them making up their own stories about who Jesus was and what he had taught. Their stories, of course, they, they did not agree. They could not come together of, of one accord with regards to what exactly Jesus had done that made him guilty. And yet, in spite of all these lies, despite the fact that Jesus could have shut this whole thing down with just a word, he would not speak. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before his shears, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he remained silent because Jesus was determined. He had set his face like flint towards the cross in obedience to the Father. In order to glorify the Father and driven by love of men, nothing would deter him. Nothing would stop him from reaching his appointed execution, from laying down his life for our sake. So Jesus would remain silent. And during the lies, the mockery, the shame, the accusations, as he headed towards his death, so finally the high priest gets to the real matter. He gets to the real issue of the whole thing and he says, Jesus, I put you under oath. I adjure you by God. Tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? Now this is a question Jesus will answer. He's not gonna entertain these other questions, but this, this is the heart of the matter. This is the reason why Jesus had come out. This was a question that he would answer. Who are you, Jesus? Where have you come from? Tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? To which Jesus answered, Ego ami. I am. I am. I am the infinite and eternal Son of God. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the God in whom all, through whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. I am the great I am. You speak truth. I am the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest knew what this meant. And so in a feint of outrage, he ripped his robes and he cried out to the people, what further witness do we need? We have a confession here. This man is just blasphemed. He makes himself equal with God. And all the rest of the council following Caiaphas' lead, they all condemned him. They all determined that in fact this Jesus was a blasphemer, that he did deserve death. So they began to spit on Jesus. They pulled out the hair from his beard they struck him on the face and they mocked him. They covered his eyes and they said, you're a prophet, eh? Tell us then, which one of us has struck you? And then as Jesus was led to the, high priest, to the court of the high priest Caiaphas, out there in the courtyard there was a fire where many soldiers, many of the guards were out there, they were warming themselves. And as Jesus was led through there, they received him with many blows. They beat Jesus over and over and over again. It seems, as if, it seems as if it was perhaps sometime during this beating when just as Jesus had predicted, Peter, the clear leader amongst the apostles, the cocky one, the one who swore, no matter what these other men do, Jesus, I will never forsake you. It seems as though it was right in the middle of this beating that for the third time, G, uh, Peter was denying even knowing Jesus. He swore a curse upon himself. He said, I swear to you by the throne of heaven, I don't know this man. He was so determined to be disassociated with Jesus. He was so determined to have nothing to do with Jesus that he brought down a curse upon himself. May the God of the universe curse me if I'm lying. I want nothing to do with that man. And then just as Jesus had predicted, the rooster crowed for the second time. We're told that right at about that moment, Jesus looks over and he makes eye contact with Peter. Peter remembered everything that Jesus had said. And he wept as he ran away. From that point forward, Jesus was alone. In order to keep the appearance of propriety, in order to pretend like this was a, a proper trial, the council determined they needed to hold one last meeting together after the sun came up. Just as they had determined, they all agreed that Jesus was in fact a blasphemer. They condemned him as deserving of death. And then they all rushed off to Pilate. 
They all rushed off to see this governor, the Roman governor of the region of Judea. In order to do this, Jesus was bound up like a common criminal, like a violent man, like a route robber or a bandit perhaps. Using rope or chains, they bound him up like an animal and they led him away to the governor's headquarters. Now, we discussed last week that Pilate was in a very precarious situation. You see, he had been charged by Rome to keep the peace. His job was to make certain, above anything else, make certain there is not an uprising. Make certain that these Jewish people pay their taxes and make certain that there is no rebellion against Rome. For if there was, you can be sure that Caesar Tiberius would not stand for this. He would remove Pontius Pilate from his position of power or worse. But on the other end of this, if he was too harsh in his discipline, if he was too restrictive in the way that he dealt with these Jewish people, they were sure to squeal. They were going to tattle to Caesar. Caesar wouldn't stand for this either. If this happened, he would be removed from power or worse. So he was caught in no man's land. He was caught with an almost impossible task. And so because of this, what you'll find is that the governorship, that this particular seat of, of rulership, Within this region of Judea, it was not exactly highly coveted. It was seen more of a stepping stone. Perhaps if I can keep this stiff-necked people, perhaps if I can keep this hard-headed people in line without bothering Caesar too much, maybe he will reward me. Maybe he will move me on to some more highly coveted position, some much nicer place where I can rule in his stead. Now, despite the delicate nature of his position and despite all that was at stake, historians tell us that Pilate was not always the most gentle he was not always the most diplomatic in his dealing with the Jewish people. We know about the incident where he led the standards, the Roman standards, carrying with them a golden bust of Caesar, a man who called himself God. This golden bust was led into the holy city of Jerusalem. We know about the time when Pilate robbed the temple treasury in order to pay for some civil construction projects he wanted to complete. But perhaps most troubling and maybe most recent was an event that we read about in Luke chapter 13. It was just referenced there briefly as if Everyone would have known about it. What we read there is that some worshiping men had come down from Galilee. They'd come into the temple there to offer their sacrifices and that there, for whatever reason, Pilate took their life. He struck them down right there as they stood offering their animals so that the blood from their own necks or perhaps their own side, the blood ran down their body and it was mingled. It mixed in with the blood of these animals that they sought to sacrifice to God. So this was the context in which the Sanhedrin brought Jesus before this man called Pilate. They had no love for Pilate, but more than they disdained him, they had to get rid of Jesus. So they weren't looking for a retrial. They weren't looking to call in witnesses. They weren't looking for his actual judgment. This council simply wanted Pilate to be their hatchet man. They wanted Pilate to take their word for it. Jesus is guilty. We wouldn't waste your time if he hadn't done evil. So Pilate, issue the order and have Jesus crucified. But something in Pilate's spirit gave him pause. He didn't want to be these men's, want to do these men's dirty work. So he looks at them and he says, well, see to it yourself. Take this Jesus and judge him by your own law. But the Sanhedrin, they wouldn't back down. They continued to put pressure on Pilate. They said, this man seeks to lead our nation astray. This man is telling our people that we cannot pay tribute to Caesar. This man claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate looks at Jesus and he asks him, are you? You? You who are bound before me? You have been handed over by your own people? You who find yourself at odds with the very people that, that lead this nation? You are a king? To which Jesus responded, yes, Pilate, I am. You have said justly. You have said what is right. I am a king. But to the other charges... Jesus would offer no reply. And we read that Pilate was amazed. I have to imagine that surely no man had ever stood before Pilate with his life on the line and remained so calm. As we will see as we work through this text today and Lord willing on the next Lord's Day, you'll find it is Pilate who sweats. As a matter of fact, I submit to you, you will find it is Pilate who is truly on trial. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We return to our verse-by-verse -verse study of Mark's gospel. We're in the 15th chapter now, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of God. Now at the feast, he used to release to them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. All God's people said, and you may be seated. Father, we can't do this. In our own power, and our own abilities, with our natural sight, our natural sense of understanding, we can't do this. We need you to help us understand what we're reading here. It's only then that we can understand how it applies to us and to our lives. So would you do this for us, Father? We ask you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just one more brief word of, of preparation. From time to time as we have moved through this gospel account that Mark delivers to us, Particularly when we come to a passage like this morning's text that's recorded not just in one, not just in two, but in all four of the Gospels. It seems prudent to me to slow down. It seems prudent to me to slow down and to draw in every last ounce of information, every last ounce of testimony that we can get from amongst these four Gospel writers. Because dear friends, I don't know when God is going to bring us back to study the narratives of the life of Jesus Christ. And I cannot bear the thought. I cannot bear the thought of letting this opportunity pass without bringing to you every last ounce of goodness. Laying before you every possible opportunity for you to see with as much vivid clarity as possible who Jesus Christ is and what he endured on our behalf. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to slow way, way down. We're not just going to pull from Mark. This isn't new to you. We've done this at various points throughout Mark's gospel, but we're not just going to pull from Mark's gospel. We're going to study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all at various points in this as we try to see the full picture of what it is that's playing out. So because of this, some of you are going to grow anxious. You're, you're going to look up, and time's going to be short. We're going to be 45 minutes in before we really even get to verse 6 in Mark chapter 15, and I'm telling you that's by design, and it's okay. Some of you are also going to walk out of this place wondering, where was the application? Now, you know I'm not a big application guy. I believe that for the people of God, for those that have been filled with the Spirit of God, that I just throw logs on the fire. I just continue to hold before you the face of Jesus Christ, and I trust the Spirit to do the work. But especially this week, it's going to feel like we don't yet really finish. It's going to feel like we kind of just draw a line in the sand and say, okay, that's all we can handle for today. Let's come back next week. Dear friends, this is by design, and I believe that you'll be blessed by it. So I ask you to hang with me if this is not our normal pattern. I ask you to hang with me if it feels like we're chasing some rabbits. I think this is absolutely critical before we get to the cross. We're people who stake our eternity on the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said to you before we began worship, we find all of our hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we do well to linger here. We do well to trust God to do what I cannot, to help you to see his son and to be changed by what you see. So with that in mind, what you would find is that between the fifth verse and the sixth verse of Mark chapter 15, there's an important thing that happens. You remember that I've told you that there are actually two trials that Jesus is going to face, one political and one religious. Actually, reverse that, one religious and then one political. I've told you that each of these trials is going to take place in three phases. Now, we've already studied all three phases of the religious trial. We've already studied the first phase of the political trial. But it's right there between verse 5 and 6 that we find the second phase of the religious trial. We have to go to Luke's gospel. You can turn there with me if you want to make sure I'm not making this up. We'll be there for a moment. You turn to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. Some people wonder if perhaps, you know, I told you that the apostle John somehow had access to the high priest. The Apostle John somehow was able to gain access for himself and Peter into the courtyard of the high priest. Some people wonder if perhaps 
Luke didn't also have some access to this man called Herod. That's where the second phase of this political trial is going to take place. And so if you turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, we read this in verse 4, that after Pilate meets with Jesus, he says to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Dear friends, I need you to take note of that. I need you to take note of just how often throughout this narrative, just how often as we work through this trial, all of this that leads up to the death of Jesus Christ, I want you to take note of just how often Pilate, the man who has heard the charge, the man who has conducted this examination of Jesus Christ, how often he concludes, I find no guilt in this man. It is key to understanding everything that's happening here. It's key to understanding just how innocent, just how righteous, just how just and holy this Jesus Christ is. Not that we look to our, our pagan rulers as the standard of righteousness. Not that we look to this man who knows nothing of God in order to determine what is right and what is just and what is holy. And yet even he cannot deny the innocence of Jesus Christ. Again, I ask you to take note of how many times Pilate, the man who's been charged with judging, they're determining the guilt or innocence of Jesus Christ. How many times he publicly proclaims, I find no guilt in this man. So Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. But again, the council, they won't take no for an answer. They were insistent. They say, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. At that point, Pilate's antenna goes up. Perhaps he sees his opening. Maybe this is his out. And so he asks the Sanhedrin, is this man a Galilean? To which they, of course, respond, yes. Jesus is from the region of Galilee. So Pilate then at that point decides that he's going to send Jesus to Herod. Now you may recall that Herod, this man is called Herod Antipas. He's the son of the tyrant, the madman called Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that sought to kill Jesus when he learned that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. Upon Herod's death, he divided up this territory. Under the blessing of Caesar, Herod Antipas, one of his sons, he was going to take control of the region of Judea, or excuse me, of Galilee and Perea. And so what this means is, is that to a certain extent, Pilate and Herod, they're contemporaries. They're essentially peers. You have Herod ruling in the north on behalf of Rome, Herod ruling in the north, and you have Pilate representing Rome in the south. So Herod was in, Passover, was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That's what men did. They come to Jerusalem in order to observe the feast, in order to be there just with all the excitement that was in the city at that time. And Herod had a palace there in the city. On the southwest corner of the city, there's a, there's a palace there where Herod would have stayed. And so upon hearing that Jesus is a Galilean and knowing, of course, that Herod was in town, Pilate sees his out. If Jesus is guilty of something, if he has committed some sin, then surely this falls under the jurisdiction of Herod. And so he sends Jesus away to be examined. Now, we aren't told explicitly what the motivation is, but it seems clear to me. It seems clear that Pilate just wants this case out of his court. Pilate wants to do anything that he can do to make sure that he does not have to make an absolute public declaration as to who this man is. Again, there are too many holes to step in. There's way too much at stake. So Pilate wants to push this off of his plate and onto Herod's, or, or maybe, perhaps, Pilate just thought, you know, this is a Jewish issue, and maybe this man called Herod, maybe Herod knows more about Jewish custom. Maybe Herod knows more about Jewish law. Maybe Herod will be able to navigate this incredibly prickly situation without setting the whole world on fire. But whatever the case, Pilate determines he's going to send Jesus to be heard by Herod. Pilate was keen to do this. I assure you that Pilate was excited at this opportunity, and so was Herod. Herod was excited to meet with Jesus. We read in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was intrigued by Jesus. It wasn't all that long ago that he wasn't so much curious as terrified. You remember back in the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel, the whole thing kicked off with a confrontation initiated by John the Baptist. You remember that Herod had married the wife of his brother, a woman creepily enough named Herodias. That Herod had married this woman called Herodias, the wife of his brother. And John the Baptist always wanted to speak up. He couldn't allow this, such a political man to sin in such a, such a public way. He had to say something. He had to confront this man in his sin. But on behalf of Herod, he couldn't allow this man to go around calling the ruler of, calling the ruler of Galilee an adulterer. 
He couldn't allow this thing to stand. And yet, we read back in Mark chapter 6 that Herod knew that John was a righteous man. So he didn't want to take his life. He was afraid of him, in fact. He was afraid to take John's life. And so he decided to settle somewhere in the middle. He decided that he would imprison John the Baptist. Dear friends, again, I say we don't look to the political figures in this world. We don't look to the secular rulers to tell us what our standard of righteousness must be, and we do not look to them as our ultimate source of justice. We live in a world that's dead set on convincing us if we just vote for the right party, we're going to see true justice. If we just vote for the right party, then surely we're going to see the kingdom of God come and really flourish. This time, this time will be different. This man is the one. Dear friends, we never place our hope there. We never place our hope there. For they will always act with expediency. They will always act in their own best interest. They will always act driven by fear, driven by the persuasion of the mob. We see this with Pilate. We see it with Herod. He knew that John was an innocent and righteous man, and yet he imprisoned him. And we see where this imprisonment led. Because you remember one night during a, during a party, it was a night of drunken debauchery that Herod's new stepdaughter came in and she danced. It, the, the context seems as though it was something a little bit lascivious or, or grotesque or suggestive the way that this girl danced and she so entertained the king and all of his all of his buddies all of his drunken buddies that he looked to the girl and he promised her what do you want I will give you anything you want even up to half of my kingdom whatever you want it shall be yours so the little girl influenced by her mother she said what about John the Baptist would you give me his head on a plate Herod knew that he had messed up he was grieved that he had made such a promise I promise you at that point, he was grieved that John the Baptist was in jail. And yet he didn't want to look like a fool. He was afraid of what kind of a hit his reputation would take if he backed down to a promise to a little girl like this. And so he gave in, and in fact, John the Baptist was beheaded. We read back in Mark chapter 6 that whenever Jesus had sent out the 12, as he sent out the apostles to do the same kind of works he did in his power, in his authority, they were healing the sick, they were casting out demons, they were teaching the gospel. That Herod heard about this, all the land had heard about this, and people began to wonder, Perhaps this Jesus is Elijah or maybe some other Old Testament prophet that has come back to which Herod responded, no, John, John the Baptist, whom I have beheaded, it is he who has been raised. So apparently the thought of John the Baptist, a righteous man that Herod had beheaded, the thought of that man back from the dead, it was understandably disconcerting. He was afraid. He was terrified, so much so that we read in Luke's gospel chapter 13 that he wanted to kill Jesus. I've killed you once, now I'll kill you again. He sought the life of John the Baptist for a second time, but now for some reason something's changed. No longer is Herod filled by fear of this Jesus. No longer does he believe that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead, but now he's curious. Is it perhaps because he realized that this wasn't John? Was it maybe because Jesus had such a different demeanor because he realized that Jesus wasn't coming head on to confront Herod in his sin, that he wasn't seeking to remove Herod from his place of, of power? Or maybe his fear was mixed with just enough intrigue. He wanted to see Jesus, and he, just like all the rest of the crowd, he was hoping that perhaps he would perform a miracle. Maybe Jesus would entertain him with some sort of a, a party trick. But Jesus wouldn't do this. As Jesus arrives, he finds that there the council is again. The Sanhedrin, they've scurried over like the little rat pack that they are. They've scurried over to the, to the quarters of Herod, and they're there making more accusations. And yet, Jesus wouldn't speak, nor would he perform any signs. We read in verse 11, And so Herod, with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then they arrayed him in splendid, in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. Dear friends, this is a mockery. This entire ordeal, this isn't just about pain. It isn't even just about taking the life of Jesus Christ. It's about mockery and shame and humiliation. For years, theologians have talked about the two stages of Christ the states, excuse me, of Christ. Humiliation leading to exaltation. This is a humiliation. We haven't talked about this at any point in our walk through Mark. I told you we're going to chase some rabbits. I think this is a critical rabbit. I think it's important for us to see the humiliation. He says, every one of us knows this Jesus Christ, this one who stands before Herod on this day, the one who will be sent back to Pilate, the one that will die on a cross in our stead. He is the infinite and eternal son of God. Before the incarnation, before the appointed time when the Holy Spirit would come over a virgin called Mary and she would conceive within herself our Lord, before that moment, 
the Son of God had experienced nothing but unimaginable glory and honor. Everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. All-powerful, all-knowing, infinite in his wisdom and righteousness and goodness and love, his majesty, his beauty, his worth, they knew no end. You must understand that in his pre-incarnate divinity, the Son of God lacked nothing. The Son of God was not sitting in heaven going, you know what would be swell? You know what would really, would really make my day? If I would head down to earth, then I would truly be God. Then I would truly be somebody worthy of worship. The Son of God has always been God, infinitely worthy, unending in his glory and his majesty and his beauty, and yet driven by love driven by love and devotion, a devotion and a zeal for the glory of the Father, and driven by the love of man who had sinned so badly against him, the Son of God stepped down from heaven. Church, what we witness here in the trial of Jesus Christ, what we witness in the beating and in the mockering and mocking and the pulling out of his beard and the spitting of his face, we must recognize that Jesus' humili- humiliation, his humility, it did not begin here. This was not the very first moment when Jesus tasted dishonor. This night of his, of his arrest, this was not the moment, the first moment when he came into contact with shame. It had always been there, surrounding him from the moment of his very birth. Now, we don't seem to realize this because we've always lived here. We've never lived in a world that wasn't fallen. We've never lived in a world that wasn't mocked with humilia- marked with humiliation and shame. It's like trying to tell a fish what it's like to live somewhere that is dry. It's like telling a fish what it means to live in a place that is not wet. We have no concept of this, and yet it's so very foreign to God. It is so very contrary to everything in his nature. His unending professions, his unending perfections, they know nothing of shame. They know nothing of humiliation. They know nothing of lack. Not only this, but this was not the way the world was meant to be. You remember that in the beginning, what God gave to Adam was an absolutely perfect world. A perfect world where there was nothing like shame. There was nothing like embarrassment. As a matter of fact, we read that in the beginning, In the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. In their perfection, in their perfect state, in their sinless state, in this perfect world, they were marked by nothing but fellowship and love and trust. But in the rebellion, in the fall of man, as they took out their hand and they took from that forbidden fruit, immediately we read that the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, just like that. With the first act of disobedience, sin and shame took hold. No longer was man open and honest. He began to lie, began to cast blame upon each other. Being exposed and seen as we really are, it no longer felt safe. It no longer felt like a wise thing to do. As as evil and reprehensible thoughts started to creep into the minds of men, as our bodies started to show all the marks of decay, as death loomed out in the distance, as our bodies became weak and frail, people sought to hide from each other. People sought to hide from each other and attempt to hide from God. In short, sin led to humiliation. Sin and shame, mockery, all the things that we see coming upon our Lord on this night, this was all a result of sin. This is all a consequence of the curse. For us to be here, for us to be born into this world, is to swim in it. We've never known anything other than weakness and dishonor, decay and indignity, sin and shame. This was the world in which Jesus Christ, this is the world into which the Son of God, the infinite, infinitely glorious one, stepped down. As he would say to Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Dear ones, this is an unparalleled condescension. Leaving behind the comforts, leaving behind the treasures, leaving behind the glories of heaven, the splendor that had always been his, and stepping into a fallen world. Stepping into a world that is marred and marked and cursed because of our sin, and yet not merely coming as God. You see, God has always been here. He'd made his presence known. He made his presence known in the temple. He made his presence known with his people as he wandered in the wilderness. He made his presence known in a burning bush. God had always been here as God, and God cannot be marred by sin. God cannot be changed. God cannot be, cannot be shamed. God cannot be affected by the curse. And so the Son of God, he came to become the Son of Man, to take upon himself the fullness of humanity. Not just God living amongst a shameful people, not just God living amongst a world that is marked by the consequences of sin, but to take these things upon himself, to become fully man, to become truly man. We see it from his very birth. Again, not just 
in these escalating times as we move towards the cross. We saw it from the moment of his birth as the infinite, the omnipotent, the glorious son of God came to be born as a baby for the first time realizing what it means to be cold, feeling what it means to be weak, feeling what it means to be helpless and dependent upon his mother to care for him. Dear friends, this is an unfathomable humiliation. Don't let the manger scene uh, convince you otherwise. This precious child, this precious baby, it's a sweet scene to us today. You must recognize the downward step that is for the Son of God to come and be born as a child like this, to live under the weight of shame and humiliation, to take upon himself the curse of sin all the way until the very end. Now, all throughout Jesus' life, there was marks of the exaltation. We saw signs of the glory. Think about even at his birth, as the angels announced it to the shepherds, or as the wise men came from afar to to bow down in, in exaltation, to bow down in honor to this Christ child. There was always these little bits, these little signs for those that had eyes to see, for those to whom God determined he was going to reveal it. There was always these little assurances from God that the glory that belonged to the Son had always been there, and it had not departed. It had not diminished one bit. We see this, of course, in the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus pulls back the flesh just for a moment to reveal the glory that has always been his. And yet, it was veiled. It was cloaked beneath his, hum- his humanity. That's why we read in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, that Christ Jesus is the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Yet it doesn't just stop there. Not only was he born in the likeness of men, not only did he come to take upon himself a human body that is weak and frail, a human body that can die, not only did he take upon himself a soul that can be truly tempted to sin, not only did he lay aside his prerogative to be seen as the infinitely glorious God of the universe, but Jesus Christ placed himself under the law. Dear friend, the very law that was meant to point men towards him, the very law that was meant to be a reflection of his holy nature. God doesn't submit himself under the law. The law radiates from him. It's a reflection of his character. It's a sign of his nature. The law was given to men that they might know that their sin is there. The law was given to men that they might see their helpless estate and their attempts to please God. The law was given to men as a tutor. The God was given to men as a babysitter to carry them, to restrict their sin, and to show them their desperate need of a Savior. And yet the Son of Man, the infinitely glorious Son of God in the incarnation, he came to submit himself, to be born under this law, forgiving it, fulfilling every last letter, upholding every last demand, winning every last blessing that is due to those who would uphold it, and yet still associating himself with sinners. It would have been one thing for God to step down into into the earth, to live in this sinful place as God, not taking upon himself any of what it means to be man, and yet he did. It would be another thing altogether for the Son of God to become the Son of Man, to become fully human, to live a perfect life under the law, and to completely separate himself from sinful men, and yet he didn't even do this. He came to associate himself, to do life, to break bread, to spend time with sinful men. Not only this, but to undergo the baptism. Think about this. What is the baptism? Is it not a sign of cleansing? Is it not an outward sign of an inward recognition of sin, an inward recognition of repentance? But the Son of God had no sin. The Son of God had no need of repentance. And yet to fulfill all righteousness, to be fully like us, to do all that God commands in order to lay down his life as a perfect and righteous substitute, the Son of Man submitted himself to even this. Are you getting the picture? The exaltation, the glory was always there. But there was so much humiliation. There was so much shame. There was so much sorrow that accompanied this man's loss. Again, I say that the glory was always there. Even as he came up out of the water after the baptism, we see the voice of the Father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But dear friends, we must never lose sight of all that Jesus Christ endured on our behalf. We must never lose our our sense of amazement at all that he let loose so that he could be one of us, so that he could truly stand in our place, so that he could truly earn for us eternal blessings from the Father, so that he could be a righteous, a just, a suitable substitute so that he could earn for us the glory that we could not possibly earn by taking upon himself the humility, the humiliation, the shame that should have been ours. So as we approach this, it should be no surprise to us as we move closer to the cross, and we move closer to that ultimate picture of the glory of God, 
the way in which he would redeem man to himself. It should be no surprise to us that the humiliation along with it, we see an acceleration. We see as these men, these men that he came to offer himself to, these men that he came to extend peace with God and salvation and freedom from their sin, we should not be surprised in the least that we see these men meeting him with nothing but scorn, mocking him, beating him, spitting upon him, rejecting him and demanding his death, tying him up like an animal to lead him away to some secular ruler that they might have him crucified. And so now we see, if we come back to this man called Herod, this imposter king of, the, king of Galilee, this one who is the son of an imposter king of the Jews, we should not be surprised that we see him treating Jesus with utter contempt. He seeks to make a Seems to make sport of the Lord of the universe. You see, it's a joke to these men, like dressing a donkey up in a top hat. They said, let's take this guy, this homeless guy, this man with no place to lay his head, this man who's been abandoned by all his followers, this man who has been beaten, this man whose clothing is, is marked by blood-stained sweat. Let's take this man, let's dress him up in fine apparel. Let's put robes upon him. Isn't this funny? Isn't this funny? It's like putting a monkey in a tuxedo. Let's dress up the Son of God like this. They had no concept that even, even the finest linen, even the greatest silk this world has to offer, it was not fit to lay upon the Son of God. They thought he was a joke. And yet, dear friends, we know that this is the thing that leads to his ultimate exaltation. It was in this as they carried him to the cross, they took his life, the ultimate of humiliation, not just dying, but dying like a wretched sinner, dying naked, hung up before the whole world to see that in the ultimate of humiliation, this would lead to the greatest of exaltation. We know that it is there that he would receive a name above every other name, that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Is the words that David read to us earlier, because he despised the shame, that means to look down upon it. It means to think very little of it. To look down upon the shame as he, as he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him because he knew that this was almost over. You must know that as Jesus Christ walked through this, he knew what he was headed towards. He knew that the humiliation, he knew that the pain, he knew that the suffering was almost over. And that for the joy, the exaltation, the worship, the glory that waited on the other end of this, he endured, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So this is stage two. This is stage two of the political trial. Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, so he sees a way out and he sends him to Herod. Herod then makes a mockery of Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. And we read that this is a real turning point in the relationship between Jesus, uh, Pilate and Herod. Apparently there was some conflict. There was some tension between Herod and, uh, Pilate and Herod. I have to imagine this had something to do with Herod slaughtering, Pilate slaughtering some of Herod's people when they came there to worship. But this event apparently brought them together. We see this today, don't we? People that have nothing in common, people in fact that find themselves at odds, they can agree on one thing. There is no room in this world for Christ. I have no use for you, you have no use for me, but we can all agree that God's got no place in this world and neither do his people. This is why we can look back to the words of King David and we can relate. King David said in the second Psalm, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The world has always been determined to break free from God the kingdoms the nations the presidents the senators the rulers the governors the judges I do not say that there is not a one that does not serve God because we praise him that there are we praise God that he does see fit to place good and righteous men in positions of leadership from time to time but dear friends you must not place your hope there you must look around you and recognize that this world is destined to murder God they're destined to wrestle themselves free from his hand so still and Luke 23, Pilate calls the Sanhedrin back together. He says to them in verse 14, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of anything or any of the charges that you bring against him. Verse 15, Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Here another public declaration of Jesus' innocence. Pilate and Herod, they had nothing in common. Neither Pilate nor Herod, they had any love for Jesus Christ. They had no desire to uphold the law of God. As a matter of fact, I have to believe that life would have been so much easier for these men had Jesus been guilty. 
It would have been so much easier for them if they could have just given the men what they, what they wanted. If Jesus had been obviously guilty of something, life could have all just gone back to the way it was supposed to be. They could have executed Jesus like they had ex- executed so many men before, and all of this would have gone away, and yet they couldn't. Neither Pilate nor Herod found anything in Jesus Christ as deserving of death. So we read in verse 16 that Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. Why? Why? If Jesus is innocent, if Jesus is guilty of none of the charges that these men have brought, why then would Pilate see the need to punish him? Of course we know this because he's so worried about the crowd. He's so worried about the crowd. He's so terrified of an uprising. He's so terrified that he's going to lose his position of power that he thinks to himself, maybe if I just give him a little bit of something, maybe if I just beat Jesus a little, I don't have to kill him, but maybe if I just punish Jesus a little bit, then maybe the Sanhedrin will be appeased. But dear church, you must listen to me. I need you to listen to me very, very closely. The mob will never be appeased. Sinful men like this will never be satisfied. Look around you. There was a new group with a new set of demands almost every single day. And I keep telling you the day is going to come when they're going to come after us. My mom texted me the other day and she said, hey, pray for me. There's a chance. We were told there's a chance. Pray for us. We were told there's a chance that there might be some protesters outside our church this morning. I went, they're supposed to be here. I'm not looking for trouble. But when you live in a world full of people that is determined they're going to pervert the truth, determined they're going to rewrite the moral code, when you have a church full of people that determine they're going to stand on the word of God, they're going to boldly proclaim it, our day will come. And when our day comes, their demands of us are going to be the same as the demands of the Sanhedrin. Give us what we want or there will be trouble. Give in to our demands, or you're going to pay. They will threaten, and they will squeal, they will accuse, they will even seek to use our scriptures to shame us. And we will be tempted. Look, guys, I'm not some kind of tough guy. You know this. Those of you that really know me, you know this. I'm not a tough guy. I don't like conflict. I don't like being seen and accused of evil. And I certainly don't like to suffer. And so there's going to be this temptation when that day comes. There's going to be a temptation amongst many within our group. We're going to get pressure. Those of us that want to remain, that want to hold the line, that want to remain true to the word of God, there's going to be others within this body that are going to say, well, why can't we just give them a little something? Why do we have to be so dogmatic about everything? Look, we're never going to reach these people. Jesus said to love your neighbor like you love yourself. So just give them a little something. We're never going to be able to reach them if we completely alienate them. And we're sure never going to be able to reach them if they shut down this church, if they drag us all away, if they take away our building. We certainly aren't going to reach them then. So just give them a little something. Why don't you just give in to a little bit of their demands? But church, look back over the history of the world. Look back just over the last five years. The mob will never be satisfied because in reality, it's not us that they're battling against. It's God. We're not their enemies. They're the kings and the nations seeking to spit in the face of God, seeking to overthrow God seeking to rewrite the moral code and reject the moral law of God. And so they will never feel at peace. They will never find joy. Here's what will happen. Men and women will die. They will be destroyed and they will die, having bent their knee and kissed the boot of these thugs. Having sought to appease them, they will be dead and gone. And still the mob will say, how can I have peace and joy when there's still a God out there that thinks he can judge me at the end of this life? That's the state of man. We read in Proverbs 19.3 that when a man's folly leads to destruction, his heart rages against God. This is all God's fault. But I can't get to God. So I'm gonna get to you. Dear friends, the mob will never go away. But beyond this, you must know that refusal to stand on the truth of God in fact, going against our conscience, it's a very dangerous game. I must stand with Martin Luther who said that my conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right 
to go against my conscience. May God help me. Amen. We see in this man called Pilate, look, he's obviously not a believer. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care anything about the moral law of God. And yet we see this hesitation. Of course, at least part of it has something to do with his fear of the crowd, something to do with a fear of a misstep or losing his power. That, that, that's part of it. But, church, I sincerely believe that Pilate is being beat up by his conscience. Even for non-believers, God has given them a conscience. A conscience is just that part of man by which he knows himself. He knows himself and he knows his thoughts. And then he judges what he knows of himself and what he knows of his thoughts about what he believes to be right and true and just. This is a gift from God. Now the conscience is not infallible because firstly, man does not perfectly know himself or his motives. Secondly, because man does not have a perfect grasp on the perfect law of God. So of course, consciences aren't perfect. Of non-believers, their consciences can be a wreck. They can be completely inverted. But even amongst the children of God, even amongst us, our consciences can be weak, they can be seared, they can be misinformed. And yet God has given us this thing, this conscience. It's an absolute gift from him, and we see him talking about this. In Romans 2, Paul talks about the fact that even amongst those that refuse to recognize God, those who know nothing of the word of God, that God has imprinted upon their heart his law. There's a reason why all the world seems to know that murdering an innocent man is not right. That this is an act of love from God. That this law that is written on their heart, that it will, it will capture their conscience. It will speak against them. It will accuse them. At times it will excuse them of things that they have done. And yet we must treat this conscience with great care. We must not seek to silence it. You know, we've got a, a septic system. We live on a little bit of land, and so we've got a septic system out back. What that means is my stuff is still my stuff. It doesn't go to anybody else's house. And when the thing gets too full, your alarm lets you know. So we hear this beeping in our house. So when we're inside and we're doing something that we want to be doing, we're eating supper, we're watching a movie, we're spending time as a family, we don't want to deal with the stuff. We just want the alarm to stop. So we go outside and push that button. Push that button enough times, we don't even hear the alarm going off anymore. Do that for long enough and the stuff comes back in your house. Dear friend, your conscience is that alarm. It's alerting you to the reality that there's a problem. And yet what do we see Pilate doing? What sinful men always do. They suppress it. Suppressing the truth. What did we study last Sunday night? That Jesus Christ says, when Pilate looks at him and says, oh, so you are a king. He tells him, I'm not, I'm not a king like you're a king. My kingdom is not of this earth. Pilate says, oh, so you are a king. And he says, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I've come into the world, to give testimony to the truth. What was Pilate's response? What is truth? Pilate knew the truth about Jesus Christ, and he suppressed it. Dear friends, you suppress the truth long enough, you tell your conscience to shut up long enough, you'll find it seared and hardened, and it'll just stop. Unable to know the truth. Unable to come under conviction. Unable to respond to what God is doing in your life. So now, we've made it to Mark chapter 6. Excuse me, verse 6, chapter 15. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So John tells us that it was traditional, each Passover. This is a bit like a presidential pardon, right? That Pilate, just as many presidents today, presidents today, they, they, they grant clemency to men. They, they release them from prison as an act of goodwill. And maybe in a case that they think wasn't heard rightly or a man that's already paid his dues, for whatever reason, a, a president can release a man from prison. Apparently Pilate could do the same thing. But unlike American presidents... Pilate, apparently, he let the people vote. He let the people have a say. He let the people tell him who he should release, one prisoner each year at the Passover. Verse 7. So among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. We're introduced to a new character here. But you already know who he is. This man, Barabbas. And we can learn a lot about a man by his name. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? The first part of this name, Bar. Have you ever heard that before? Bar means son of. Just as in Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon, the son of John. So his first, first part of his name, Bar, means son of. What about Abbas? Ever heard that name before? What about when Jesus was in the garden, crying out to the Father, and he said, Abba, 
Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Abba means father. So this man called Barabbas, what his name means is son of the father. Now, this certainly isn't a name that's easy to identify a man by. We're all sons or daughters of a father. And so there's some manuscripts of Mark's gospel that tell us that perhaps this man's name was actually Jesus. Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father. Now, Jesus was a common name in first century Palestine, and we don't know for sure whether this was actually this man's name, but that would seem like a thing God would do, isn't it? That in custody of Pilate, you've got two men, Jesus the Christ and Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the most high God, and Jesus, the son of a man. Jesus, the perfect and righteous and innocent one, and Jesus, the insurrectionist. But whatever the case, we're told that Barabbas was a murderer. In fact, we're told that he commits murder during the insurrection. So apparently Mark believes that first century readers of this, they would have known about this specific insurrection. Now, insurrection is just an uprising or a rebellion. It's the exact kind of thing that Pilate was terrified of, the exact kind of thing that Caesar wouldn't stand for. The people rising up and trying to take control of Israel back from Rome. Oftentimes, these uprisings, these insurrections, they were led by zealots like this man called Simon, who was an apostle. So the insurrections, they would have often been carried out by men carrying daggers. They would carry daggers under their cloaks. They would have come up behind Roman soldiers, and they would just shiv them. They were, they were masters at death. They knew where to strike them. They would strike these men. They would drop dead, and then this zealot would sneak away in the darkness, and no one would ever know that he'd ever been there. So these rebellions, they weren't all that uncommon, but apparently this insurrection was well known. It was well known by the readers. It was so well known that we read in Matthew's gospel that this man called Barabbas, he was a notorious prisoner. I read this to mean that perhaps he was a bit of a hero. Perhaps this insurrectionist, perhaps this murderer, perhaps this man that had played a part in this rebellion, he was a bit of a local hero to the Jewish people. Now if we look at John's account, we look at John chapter 18, what we'll find is that he tells us that Barabbas was a robber. Why would we be told this? We're already told that the guy's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist and a murderer. Why this lesser charge? Why would John feel urge, the urge to tell us he was a murderer and a robber? Being a murderer is a much bigger deal than being a robber. Why a robber? Do you remember what the two men on the left and right of Jesus were guilty of? When we get to the, 15th chapter, or the end of the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel, verse 27, and with Jesus were crucified two robbers. Lestes is the word in Greek. It means a highwayman or a, or a bandit. Jesus was crucified between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Church, I believe that the middle cross occupied by Jesus Christ had this man's name on it. That this man, Barabbas, just like his two companions, they had been caught in the insurrection. They were murderers and they were robbers. Now you've got to know that Rome didn't waste any time. Whenever they had a man that was condemned, whenever they had a man that was set for execution, they weren't going to waste a whole lot of time feeding him, waiting for appeals, and housing the man. So clearly this must have been a thing that happened fairly recently. Church, I truly believe that this man, Jesus Barabbas, he was intended to be crucified along with his two companions on this Good Friday. That cross had his name on it. I could be wrong. Might be completely wrong. But dear friends, surely you see the picture. An innocent man sitting in prison as Jesus Christ, excuse me, a guilty man sitting in prison while Jesus Christ, the only innocent man to ever live, stood trial, and ultimately they would swap places. One of them set free while the other is crucified. Verse 8, we're going to wrap up here shortly. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for him. So this is the crowd. We've shifted away from the Sanhedrin now, and so we're not really sure what the crowd is doing there. You remember that the Sanhedrin, they had been very careful to arrest Jesus at night. They had done all this under the darkness of night because they wanted to make certain that there wasn't any kind of a, of a rebellion, any kind of a, an uprising amongst the people. And so we don't know exactly what the crowd is doing here. Had they maybe found out about the arrest? That's possible. That's very likely, in fact, because you remember that there may have been as many as 1,000 men that went out to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe they were just there because, hey, it's Passover time. We want them to release for us one of our prisoners, and so they had showed up for that. But whatever the reason, the crowd is there. Verse 9, and Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
And the way Matthew records it, it's more of a multiple choice question. Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? So Pilate is clearly hoping that the crowd is going to bail him out. He's looking out at the people, and he knows that they love Jesus. He's heard of Jesus riding into town and, and, and the celebration that came with that. He knows about the way that Jesus had cared for them, healing their sick and casting out demons. He knew how compassionate and loving he had been towards them. He had seen the crowds that rallied around Jesus all throughout this week. And so surely Pilate is thinking, sure, this, this crowd's going to be more, more level-headed than the Sanhedrin. This crowd is going to demand that I release for them Jesus, who they call the Christ. So Pilate's done dealing with the Sanhedrin. And we read why in verse 10. It says, for Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You see, that Pilate was a cowardly and a cruel and a prideful and an unprincipled man. But Pilate was not a fool. He knew what these men were up to. As a matter of fact, these very same kind of tactics that the Sanhedrin were trying, this was the exact kind of stunt that Pilate would have pulled. He knew. Pilate knew what drove this whole thing. It was envy. And this word, it can also be translated as jealousy. These are, these are different but very similar sins. The whole idea of covetousness or, or jealousy or envy. Covetousness is to, to see something that someone else wants and then to have a sinful desire for that thing. To be obsessive almost in your desire for that thing. Jealousy is to have a sinful sense of ownership or desire for something that is yours or something that you believe ought to be yours. Whereas envy is a little bit more personal. It's to, it's to have inflamed within you these, these hateful thoughts, these begrudging thoughts towards another man because of something that he has or something that he is. Now the sins, they can almost be indistinguishable, but they come from the exact same root. It's a selfishness. It's a self-interest. It's an ingratitude at what God has provided and a prideful belief that you deserve more. So James warns us very clearly about this. James 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? But his conduct, by his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false with the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Where envy, where jealousy exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When we get to 1 Corinthians, we see Paul con contrasting envy with true love. Love denies self. Love builds up and tells the truth. Love is self-sacrificing, but envy is the offspring of selfishness. Envy boasts. Envy lies. Envy leads to hatred. You must understand this. That envy is not some minor sin. Envy is not some lesser sin. Envy is a cancer. Envy is a cancer that will rob you of all joy. Envy is a cancer that will keep you from ever finding commitment. Envy is a cancer that if left unchecked, it will completely consume you. You'll find yourself completely hating someone that's done nothing wrong to you whatsoever. Just a mention of their name, just by nature of their mere existence, them receiving some kind of accolade, someone else bringing them up in conversation, it will drive you absolutely mad. You'll find yourself rooting for the destruction of others. You'll find yourself assuming the worst about others. You'll find yourself devoting yourself to bringing up the faults, whether true or not, bringing up the faults of others to make sure that everybody else hears them. Dear friends, envy will destroy you. Envy leads to lies, it leads to cheating, and it will lead to murder. And that's exactly where these men were. These weren't notorious prisoners. These weren't murdering insurrectionists. These were cowards. These were self-focused, selfish, cowardly, envious little men that looked to the government and demanded that they do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, murder Jesus. That's where envy leads, because he threatened their little kingdoms, because the people went after them. I tell you, the very heart of this sin, the very heart of this sin of envy, it's a sin God is much too small and yourself is much too big. Heart that recognizes your own sin, heart that recognizes your own depravity, a heart that recognizes that you are no good thing from the hand of God, and it sees God as infinitely glorious, sees God in all his power and all his goodness and all his perfection, a heart that recognizes that there is no way that a sinful man like me might stand before the living God and demand anything. In a heart like this, there's no room for envy. There's nothing but worship. There's nothing but celebration. Every good thing that he gives us, we celebrate, even if that thing is given to someone else. We're able to celebrate because we understand that the purpose of this thing isn't about me. The purpose of this thing isn't about my comfort. The purpose of this, this thing isn't about my reputation. The purpose of this thing is the glory of God. 
And if God sees fit to show his glory by blessing someone else, then I will praise him and count myself blessed for having seen it, for having been aware of it. But these men could not. They had made God so small, themselves so big, that they truly believed that they deserved to be praised. They truly believed that they deserved to be worshiped and followed and adored, and they could not stand the thought that the world had gone after this other man. I think that's all we have time for today. Dear friends, I will leave you with this. I will ask you to look to the envy of these men and pray to God that you never fall into this sin. I'll ask you to seek out in your heart any ounce of selfishness, any ounce of self-centered pride, any ounce of jealousy or conceit or covetousness or envy and recognize exactly where it may lead you and kill it today. I would ask you to look to Pilate and see his cowardice, see a man who refused to stand on the truth, see a man who refused to stand up the mob and pardon the only innocent man who had ever lived. And I'd ask you to look to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and see his humility. See the humiliation. See the shame that he endured that you and I might be exalted, that you and I might find glory at the end of this life. And from that point, I would call you to worship him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he has endured on our behalf. We thank you for these gospel texts that you have given us. Father, we would have no other way of knowing had you not seen fit by your spirit to bring these men to record these truths for us, to show us all that Jesus was and all that he did. Father, we would be in the, blind, be in the dark. We would be blind. We would be like men without eyes groping around. We praise you, Father, for the things that we have seen. We know that these are the things that the prophets of old longed to see, that we are truly blessed to have them. Father, I pray that what we have heard, what we have received today, will take root in our hearts and leave us changed. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>